Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates newsletter audio cast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today we're going to be looking at volume 12, issues number 14 and 16. This week, we're going to be touching upon carbohydrates and exercise, as well as hydration. But before we get started with the data, I've started something new in the newsletter called Song of the Week. It's an effort to share the joys of music, which I'm extremely passionate about. And I'm going to try and provide a song every week that sort of moves me in one way or another. This week, if you have a moment, listen to Love Can Only Heal by Miles Kennedy. You can see that song at Spotify or Apple Music or any other place you have options to stream music. Okay, so section one this week in the newsletter is a title called Carbs and Exercise. So carbohydrates and exercise is sort of this space that people get really confused when it comes to what should we do, what's proper nutrition, how do we perform optimally based on our dietary choices. We know that one of the keys to enhanced exercise performance is proper nutrition. Modern professional athletes are figuring this out as the air of sports doping has been blown wide open in recent years, even as many still try to cheat the system. Many teams now employ nutritionists and chefs in order to meet the athletes' needs and help their players excel. What happens during exercise? Let's look at the science first. When we exercise, our muscles need to burn sugar or fat as fuel to work effectively. The choice of macronutrient, carb, protein, or fat depends on the intensity. At high-intensity states like sprinting or fast cycling, the muscles prefer rapid energy, and that preferred fuel source is glucose, which is rapidly burned to ATP in the muscle's mitochondria by a system called glycolysis. In a slow burn state, like a long run, the body prefers fatty acids because the muscles' needs are less rapid, leaving the preferred fuel source as fat, which is burned to ATP, adenosine triphosphate, in the muscles' mitochondria by beta-oxidation. Fatty acid oxidation is more efficient and burns cleaner, which is good for your mitochondria. Peter Tia, MD and excellent podcaster, uses the analogy which I really like. Quote, when driving on flat roads, the car will use diesel gas, fatty acids for the muscles in our case, because it's more efficient and economical because you get more miles per gallon. If you're driving through the mountains, you'll need more acceleration, so you'll use the regular gasoline, which is glucose for the muscles, end quote. So there's a little key science aside that I wanted to touch upon here for more understanding. During exercise, an insulin-independent release of a glucose transporter called GLUT4 occurs, migrating to the muscle cell surface, allowing glucose to enter the cell to be metabolized into ATP, adenosine triphosphate, in the mitochondria via glycolysis in the Krebs cycle. ATP is energy and allows our muscles to contract and move. And inadvertently, that moves us. Our muscles can store a certain amount of ATP as itself, as well as glucose in the form of glycogen, which is akin to how plants stores it as starch. The concentration of glycogen in the muscle pre-exercise will dictate how much energy can be released during a workout. The storage form of sugar is depleted during intense workouts. Unfortunately, we cannot transport this sugar from one muscle to another. 
Therefore, when you exercise, you can only get sugar from each individual muscle or to a lesser extent from the liver's glycogen or synthesized from fats and amino acids or exogenously consumed glucose. Thus, maximizing the muscle's glycogen for exercise is one of the keys to peak performance. Remember that the intensity dictates the fuel source used. Therefore, for a long run at moderate intensity, glycogen stores may not matter at all, whereas a high-intensity marathon will require these stores as well as consume glucose during the run. This can be seen in training zones. Training zones are dictated by your personal heart rate percentages of a maximum, which are further based on age and fitness level. For example, my personal max heart rate at the age of 51 is around 186. Thus, the training zone for me our percentage of that heart rate. So for zone one, that would be roughly 50 to 60% of that 186. Zone two would be 60 to 75% of that 186, which for me is 111 to 139. This is important as the new research shows that long training at zone two is very good for your heart and the body in general. It also increases insulin sensitivity significantly. This is a win-win. From a metabolic perspective, training zones one through three usually burn fat as the primary fuel source because of the higher energy yield per molecule and burn efficiency. Zones four to six burn carbohydrates primarily until it's all-out sprint, which uses stored muscle ATP or rapid anaerobic ATP generated pathways like creatine phosphate system or lactate. Our liver does store sugar as glycogen and can transfer this sugar anywhere but it cannot store as much as a muscle can for exercise, make it ineffective as a serious source of serious athletes. When an athlete says that they hit a wall during this intense exercise, they're telling you they ran out of muscle glycogen for an energy source, and they're starting to burn lean tissue or fat to produce glucose, which is very inefficient and counterproductive for muscle mass and cannot be a supply source during this intense exercise, leaving you exhausted. As you go through the zones of training, you start to consume more oxygen for metabolic respiration and ATP production. This leads to muscle contraction and release activity. You switch from fat burning to glucose and lactate burning. The latter releases hydrogen ions into the muscle, which causes the muscle aches at maximum workouts. High endurance and experienced athletes have many advantages. One of them is the ability to clear lactate and hydrogen from the muscle, reducing exercise fatigue and cramps. The fitter you are, the better you will be able to store glycogen in this muscle. You will also need it less as you remain more efficient at burning fat at higher power outputs. A win-win again. The science of sports is quite amazing now. We are truly maximizing the human machine's ability. Fit athletes have the lowest volume of intramuscular fat and the most sensitive insulin and insulin-dependent glucose uptake. Aside, I think of the muscle fat in the context of animal meats. The least healthy animal meats for our consumption contain the most intramuscular fat. Think of a corn-fed cow here. There's something to be said here about a natural diet and the movement for the animal. This also brings the insulin resistance work full circle. Insulin resistance cause, caused by excessively consumed free fatty acids, glucose, and fructose from Americanized processed foods will drive intramuscular fat, which is a hallmark of poor exercise fitness. So there's a lot going on here, but ultimately, if you want to be a peak performer in exercise function, 
you really need to look at these principles of how you generate and store glucose as glycogen, how you burn fat based on your workout regimen, and just what is your natural carbohydrate intake, right? And how does that then therefore appear in your body as fat, glycogen, or glucose in the bloodstream? A lot to be learned. So when we think about carbohydrate loading pre-exercise, post-exercise, and during exercise, they all have their place and all can be very important and key. Post-workout, pre-match loading. The data here shows that two days prior to an endurance event like a marathon, long soccer game, long swim, etc., if an athlete works out really hard and depletes the muscles, sugar stores, the glycogen, while withholding sugars from the diet, they can enhance the storage of glycogen post-exercise by carb-sugar loading. Therefore, two days later during an event, they have maximal muscle glycogen stores to compete with. In other words, two days before big events, an athlete should have a hard workout and not eat flour or sugar-based foods. Eat nuts, seeds, vegetables, proteins like organic meat, soy, other vegetable-based proteins. Then post-workout, eat whole grain pasta, brown rice, whole um, wild rice, or other rapidly digesting carbohydrates that are high quality. The key is to get the meal within the first two hours post-workout. Having a healthy lifestyle bar immediately after the workout makes good sense to get the process started before the big meal. The data shows that high-end sports supplements like Recoverite or other post-workout drinks are as effective as a home-cooked meal. However, I tend to think that a natural food meal is still preferable to a processed variety because it also provides fiber and microbiome-enhancing molecules that a drink or shake can never replicate over a long period of use. If you do not get the meal within the first one to two hours post-exercise, you invariably have lost the ability to fill up your muscles with glycogen and optimal sugar stores. The day in between the carb load and the race or game should be a rest or light workout day with a diet that is whole foods based. Remember that inadequate carbohydrate stores would lead your body to break down lean mass, which is your muscle. That's not good. One of the hallmarks of early death as we age is lack of lean muscle. Remember that this is primarily an issue for endurance athletes, this discussion we're having, and not for the weightlifter or the golfer. Now that endurance athletes have preloaded their muscles with glycogen and or glucose days before the event, what do they do dietarily the day of and during the event? This is where we need to understand nature a bit. When you run, when you run a race or run away from a bull, your body releases chemicals called catecholamines which alter the physiology of your metabolism to reduce insulin use and maximize sugar availability and fatty acid breakdown for energy. In this way, your body makes as much sugar available as possible to feed your muscles in order to evade the bull. Based on this principle, it is clear from the research that during a long, intense exercise event like a bike ride, soccer game, or marathon, you can consume high glycemic foods like honey, dark chocolate, or sports goo drinks, to enhance muscle work while you are exercising since the sympathetic nervous system is in control and driving all the sugar towards your skeletal muscle system, which has insulin-independent GLUT4 transporters in place to push the sugar into the cell for function and use. Doing the same action prior to the beginning of the exercise will cause an insulin spike and be counterproductive to the goal of maximal effectiveness as insulin will want to store the sugar as fat instead of keeping it available for the muscle. During long endurance exercise events, the goal is to avoid breaking down muscle in order to make sugar via a pathway called gluconeogenesis. 
Thus, it is imperative that you have this strong supply of muscle glycogen, fat, and sugar to burn during the event at the zone stages of macronutrient use. When do we consume carbohydrates before a race or game event? Depending on the time of event, I usually recommend three hours to digest a small to medium meal on race day. Therefore, if you have an 8 a.m. race, skip the meal and grab some nuts and then consume a fast-acting sugar during the endurance event. If the race is at noon, then have a full breakfast of high-quality food like eggs and bacon with fresh fruit and yogurt. I would still consume the fast-acting sugar during the race based on the above principles. The carbohydrate dilemma, when, how much, and why. Non-endurance training or muscle growth workouts. So we're switching gears here. So what is it about the non-endurance trainer or the muscle hypertrophy workouts that are different from the endurance workouts? Well, we look at some work by Greg Haff, H-A-F-F-E in 2000, showed that with weightlifting or resistance training, the carbohydrate that you ingest prior to and during the event has a beneficial effect on muscle glycogen storage, but no effect on muscle work output, i.e. how much your muscle is able to move or push. In other words, it has a good effect on recovery, but no effect on current muscle building. Protein is the key to muscle building. However, being carbohydrate depleted, i.e. low-carb diet, may make you feel washed out unless you are keto-adapted, which is to say that you burn fat as your primary fuel source and you've done it well for a long time. Anabolic cellular growth occurs when you stimulate certain pathways like mTOR, mechanistic target of rapamycin, which occur during the feeding of all three macronutrients, fats, carbs, protein. Study after study does show that protein is the key and 1.4 grams per kilogram per day for endurance athletes and 1.8 to 2 grams per kilo per day for weightlifters will help with maximal muscle growth. There is evidence that if you eat carbohydrates within one hour of weightlifting, you break down less protein for energy and thereby increase muscle production and mass when protein is provided. This is a good thing for a trained athlete. Increased muscle mass is useful for strength during sport activity. What types of carbs to consume? Pre-workout, I recommend complex carbs one hour prior to lifting. Choose trail mix without a lot of sugar, green banana with peanut butter, fresh fruit and nuts, hummus and red peppers. Post-workout, I recommend more complex carbs and higher volume in a protein load. For those that are not dairy sensitive, there is a place for using dairy or whey protein in this position. Remember to look at the glycemic index and load for what types of food to eat. You can Google this and it tells you a little bit about what glycemic index and load, which we've talked about in the past. Index is how fast something turns into sugar based on a scale of zero to 100. Load is how much is that is combined with fiber and things and how long does it take to turn into sugar at that position. So there's a bit of a difference there that you need to, to need to look deeper into to understand clearly. For me, aim for a load of less than 10 is ideal if you look at the scales that are online. For the article cited in this piece, uh, as always, they are noted in the Salisbury Pediatric Associate website. Okay, section two, more on fructose because, as always, it's important. The speed of delivery is very important to how much of the survival switch pathway gets activated. In an excellent research paper in the journal Cell Metabolism, Dr. Jang and colleagues found that when an animal consumes fructose as food, i.e. fruit in moderate volumes, the vast majority of the fructose molecules metabolized in the small intestine leading to the production of glucose and organic acids, which enter the circulation heading to the liver. This comes to us from Jang et al. 2018. This is important because we know 
Now, from our research discussion with Dr. Johnson, Richard Johnson that is, that excess fructose delivery to the liver is a major trigger of the survival pathway and metabolic syndrome events that follow. Food with fiber and moderate fructose volume has ample time to be digested to glucose and organic acids, reducing the survival switch activation, which is good for us. Contrast this with a fructose-laden beverage which hits the intestinal wall rapidly, is minimally processed in the small intestine, and thereby shows up in high volume in the liver, triggering hunger, fat deposition in the liver, and elevated blood pressures, aka our survival mechanisms. Thus, we keep seeing the nuances of how we have hijacked our genetic survival mechanisms by overconsuming and overprocessing nature's best foods. Fiber remains key. Eat all foods in their purest form for your best health. The take-home here is avoid all beverages with high fructose corn syrup, plain fructose, or the disaccharide table sugar in them. If you have not listened to the podcast where I interviewed Dr. Rick Johnson, please do so. It is an excellent, excellent tour through this discussion. Dr. Johnson is an amazing, amazing author and researcher. You can find that episode number 14 that was published January 28th of this year. Okay, section three, even a little more on fructose. The deep dive into fructose and metabolism will continue for many months to years in my estimation. Now we're going to look at the effect on the microbiome in inducing something called endotoxemia, which is release of uh, different chemicals from microbes in the gut that can be problematical, as well as intestinal permeability and inflammation, which can lead to metabolic syndrome. From a science-heavy article, we see, quote, Fructose drinking significantly elevated plasma bacterial endotoxin levels, likely resulting from decreased levels of intestinal tight junction proteins, zonula occludens 1, occludin, claudin 1, and claudin 4, adherent junction proteins, beta-catenin and E-cadherin, and desmosome placoglobin, along with alpha-tubulin, in wild-type rodents, but not in fructose-exposed CYP2E1 null mice consistently decreased intestinal tight junctions and adherent junction proteins and increased hepatic inflammation with fibrosis were observed in autopsied obese people compared to lean individuals. Furthermore, histological and biochemical analyses showed markedly elevated hepatic fibrosis marker proteins in fructose-exposed rats compared to controls. Immunoprecipitation followed by immunoblot analysis revealed that intestinal TJ proteins, tight junction proteins, were nitrated and ubiquinitated, which is a marker of epigenetics, leading to their decreased levels in fructose-exposed rats. End quote. This comes to us from Cho, CHO et al. 2021. For me, this study is critical for our understanding of more downstream risks related to unregulated fructose consumption. In the podcast with Dr. Alessio Fasano, number 19, recently released, we went through and explained in detail the reality of intestinal permeability, leaky gut, as his group was one of the principal investigators in the understanding of this science. The fructose molecule in high volume has the ability to alter the intestinal microbiome, alter the activity of tight junctions holding the intestinal lining impermeable, and increasing systemic inflammation through multiple mechanisms, including the release of the lipopolysaccharide molecules from bacteria that die off in the intestine. These effects are well known to worsen immunologic inflammation, leading to diabetes and heart disease, as well as death from infectious diseases like influenza and SARS-CoV-2. The take-home, again, avoid all beverages, the high fructose corn syrup, plain fructose, or the disaccharide table sugar in them. It's not rocket science. Okay, moving on to volume 12, 
letter number 16. This time we're going to be talking about water and staying hydrated. But before we get to that section, let's look at the song of the week. This week, I would encourage you to listen to the song Free Will by Rush. There are a lot of great, great ideas in the lyrics of that song. Highly encourage you to give it a listen. All right. Section one, water and staying hydrated. There's so much controversy surrounding this topic ever since Gatorade was pushed onto the market in the 80s and 90s. We have been told that we need sports drinks in order to perform at our peak and prevent dehydration. What's the truth? Are sports drinks useful or just another piece of the obesity epidemic or just one of these things that we do because it tastes good and that's what we all think makes sense? You know the answer doesn't make sense. From the British Medical Journal, we have, quote, water is a major constituent of the human body and the total body water content is tightly regulated. The goal is to ensure that the water content of the cells and hence their size remains within a homeostatically regulated range. Humans evolved as long distance persistence hunters on the arid savannas of South and East Africa. We inherited the capacity to regulate our body temperatures during prolonged exercise in dry heat, despite quite large reductions in total body water, that no other mammal has the equivalent capacity. Humans do not regulate fluid balance on a moment-to-moment basis. Because of our evolutionary history, we are delayed drinkers, and we can correct the fluid deficits generated by exercise at, for example, the next meal. When the electrolyte, principally sodium but also potassium, deficits are also corrected. As a result, there is no need to completely replace any fluid deficit as it develops either at rest or during exercise. Instead, people optimize their hydration status by drinking according to the dictates of thirst. That comes to us from Noakes, N-O-A-K-E-S-T, in 2012. When it comes to sports drinks and hydration in general, I think about adaptation. As you know, I love thinking about adaptation and anthropology as the reasoning behind the why. Does it make sense that humans would need a sugary beverage to maintain adequate hydration during exercise, like a hunt or a long migration? And if so, why does it not exist naturally on Earth as a sugar-based beverage? We have bountiful water, we have bountiful water exposures throughout nature, and we have, bountiful, we have bountiful sugar exposures through nature in food. Yet we do not have Gatorade or Powerade naturally. Yet this may still be an okay beverage if there is science to back up its need or shows an advantage to humans despite natural evolution of our species. The last requirement for me to use these beverages is that it does no harm over time. It is, as we always say, I want to see it in nature first if it makes sense for me to start it. And if it doesn't make sense based on what nature intends, is there good science to support it? That's where I fall. So clearly we need to turn to the literature. It turns out from my take on the literature that thirst, but not urine color, is a great indicator of hydration status. There is solid evidence that dehydration is not a major risk of death during most sports, whereas overhydration is. From a New England Journal of Medicine article published in 2005, the paper noted that regarding death during marathons from hydration status, it was the overhydration that was a risk factor for death regardless of beverage consumption, whether it was water or sports drinks. The author was Almond, A-L-M-O-N-D et al., 2005. Dehydration can and does affect overall athletic performance. This is primarily dependent on the length and intensity of the event. For example, 
a sprinter would need to be adequately hydrated prior to the event, and that would be sufficient, whereas a long-distance cyclist or runner will need prehydration and in-race hydration to maintain optimal performance via the prevention of fluid shifts that follow dehydration. Sports, where a lot of equipment is worn, football and hockey, would need more fluid intake than baseball, per se. Then the ambient temperature of the room, hockey versus football, also plays a role. You get the point. The variables are many. Most of them are logical. Cold room, less hydration. Hot room, more hydration. Dry room, more hydration. Humid room, less hydration. I mean, these are just simple things that we all know, but I state a few of them. When we exercise for a while in hot conditions with padding, we lose water, sodium, and chloride through sweat. We lose much more water than salt through sweat and respiration. The more that we lose, the more our cells may function suboptimally. Sodium is involved in maintaining fluid volume in the blood vessel and cell membrane electrical potential, which is involved in muscle contraction and nerve signaling. Chloride is also involved in these same pathways. You can really look at these two ions the same way as they make up salt, sodium chloride. Measuring weight loss as a percent of body weight has been used as a proxy for water loss. Greater than 2% weight loss is associated with less athletic ability over time. Less than 2% in general has no negative effect. The biggest concern with dehydration is when humans that do not sweat well exercise on very hot days. This causes the person's core temperature to rise quickly and is life-threatening. Drinking cool water and placing cooling wet towels on one's head and armpits throughout the workout can mitigate some of these risks. Maintaining adequate hydration is a key to a healthy workout or sporting event, and water is the best choice for most workouts. Try to avoid getting thirsty while working out, which can occur by getting small and frequent sips of water throughout an event where possible. What about the carbohydrates in sports drinks during exercise? Do we need them? Quote, the main advantage for athletes to drink a glucose-fructose mixture during an exercise is the capacity to absorb a greater amount of exogenous carbohydrate in the systemic circulation, which can be used immediately as energy fuel or can be directed toward the liver or the muscle glycogen stocks. Furthermore, isotonic glucose-fructose mixtures cause less intestinal problems than glucose alone, probably due to their faster digestion and absorption, explaining some of their beneficial effects on sports performance. End quote. This comes to us from Oru, O-R-R-U, et al., 2018. Post-exercise carbohydrates were discussed in the last newsletter, but suffice it to say that these beverages are rarely, if ever, necessary to peak performance during exercise. When it comes to young children and sports, I fall on the side of water is the key and sports drinks have no place in training, with the very rare exceptions for triathletes and high-endurance performers at these young ages. Once a person gets to the elite level of sports, then there may be a case for some electrolyte solution because of prolonged training. Sports drinks, 12 ounces, contain on average 5 teaspoons or 21 grams of sugar per serving. Like chronic soda or juice consumption, sports drinks used outside of vigorous athletics have been shown to increase obesity, drive fat deposition, and can lead to insulin resistance and diabetes over time. They should be avoided in general. Take-home points. Hydrate with water when thirsty and increase volumes on super hot days or when wearing lots of padding. Prehydrating before events makes common sense. Know whether you sweat well or do not and plan accordingly on hot days. Avoid sugar-enhancing sports drinks as they have limited to no role in most athletics. Always bring extra water on long hikes or events that you are away from a water source. Essentially, 
Drink responsibly and listen to your body. Section 2. Self-Compassion Is being kind to yourself a route to laziness and weakness, or is it a pathway to self-growth? This question gets a vigorous workout in the 2017 May edition of Scientific American Mind. In the article, The Self-Compassion Solution, written by Marina Krakowski, K-R-A-K-O-V-S-K-Y, we find a discussion on the merits of self-compassion in modern times, with an important look at the potential downside to this behavior. As the competitive nature of society has increased in recent years, parents around the country are putting lots and lots of pressure on their children to succeed in school and on the sports field. The obvious downside of this pressure is stress and eventually anxiety and depression when the attempts are made but the demands are not met. This is a real problem in society today. From the parent's perspective, if the child is not pressured, then they will fall way behind their peers and miss out on a top-tier college and or athletic academic scholarship. After reading the article, I was moved to write this piece for all parents struggling with raising a child. What is self-compassion? According to the article, quote, self-compassion at its most basic level means treating yourself with the same kindness and understanding that you would a friend. People who struggle with this concept research shows do not necessarily lack compassion towards others. Rather, they hold themselves to higher standards than they would expect to anyone else, end quote. The article goes on to state, quote, Many people resist self-compassion, fretting that being compassionate towards ourselves will make us egocentric, self-indulgent, or weak, end quote. Does this happen? According to the proponents of the research, the answer is no. My take on this excellent article is this. Success is a different time-centric reality. People achieve it at all different ages depending on what the end goal is. Early struggles are often the failure framework upon which the successful end product rests. To self-flagellate over mistakes or failure serves no purpose but will increase one's stress level and sense of worthlessness. Dr. Kristen Neff, a pioneer in self-compassion research, has coined three elements of self-compassion. Quote, kindness towards yourself in difficult times. Paying attention to yourself in mindful, non-obsessive ways. And common humanity or the recognition that your suffering is part of the human experience rather than unique to you, end quote. Dr. Neff's research has shown that individuals that are self-compassionate are less prone to mood disorders like anxiety. Research has also shown that when students are tested on difficult vocabulary questions, the group that was taught self-compassion by being told that the test was expected to be difficult and not to be hard on themselves, fared much better when asked to study and take the test again. In essence, the teachers let the individuals off the hook for the failure and allowed them to feel okay with it. This is a critical point for parents to understand. If a child works hard and fails to meet a goal, it is our job to make it okay and let them know that it is just a step in the direction of success. Persistent work over time will overcome any failure. People that are hypercritical of self often spend too much time ruminating on negative thoughts to the detriment of future work, gains, and happiness. Quote, research indicates that the self-compassionate are more psychologically resilient and better able to remain and regain emotional well-being after adversity, end quote. As parents, we have the balanced praise of work ethic against the backdrop of is, is it seriously okay to struggle and sometimes outright fail. Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, has a great TED talk about the growth mindset. In one school that she visited, when a child did poorly on a test, she got a score of quote, not yet, end quote. This is brilliant. 
The message to the child is keep working and you will make it. The message is loud and clear. You failed, but who cares? Try again until it no longer says, quote, not yet, end quote. This is clearly another way of fostering the beneficial self-compassion that kids need. Spend time with your kids, watching the 10-minute TED Talk, and discussing self-compassion. It may be the best thing you do for them this year. Section 3, Stoic Thoughts. Quote, Marcus Aurelius and Nero had remarkably similar early lives. Both were not obvious selections for the throne. Both were told early that supreme power was in the future, in their future. Both lost their fathers young. Both were given Stoic teacher, Rusticus to Marcus and Seneca to Nero, and both tutored in philosophy. So why did Marcus turn out to be Marcus and Nero to be Nero? Was one brilliant and just and the other vicious and unhinged? In our discussion with the author and historian Barry Strauss on the Daily Stoic podcast, one possible explanation emerged. It was their mothers who made the difference. Marcus's mother was, he writes in the book on meditations, generous, unable to even conceive of doing wrong, and lived simply. Not in the least like the rich. Nero's mother was calculating, ambitious, uncaring, and cruel. Marcus had another critical influence, his beloved stepfather, Antoninus, who treated him like a son and modeled daily what good leadership looked like. In the end, no amount of talent or training or tutoring was enough to outweigh the, that critical deficit for Nero. It's just a reminder to me that parenting matters. If you have kids, the most important role philosophy can play in all of your lives is in the guiding example you set for them, in the principles you embody, in the standards you hold yourself to. This is the area in which you can have true multi-generational impact which is the bittersweet truth about Marcus. He benefited from the positive influence of parents and the role models who were guided by the philosophies when he was young. But as an adult, his own failings as a father with his son Commodus would undo almost all good he did himself as an emperor. That is a critical difference between being, excuse me, between being a good person, a good leader, and being a good parent. It's having positive influences early and being a positive influence early and always. Excellent words from a modern-day theorist of past philosophical ideas. Parenting is hard, but unbelievably necessary for a child's growth. Most of that quotation section there comes from the Daily Stoic, which is excellent. So for me, parent up. Learn as best you can to be a great parent since we get very little education in this in any way, shape, or form outside of your own reading. Some schools are teaching it now how to be a good leader, so that's great. But overall, it's up to us to really search to be the best for ourselves. All right, folks, that sort of ends it for this week. I am wrapping up volume 12, issues number 14 and 16. I hope this was very useful for you, and I hope you have a fabulous and wonderful week or day or hour or whatever it is for you. As always, hug those kids. And now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this audiocast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. It does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.